Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. We're fast approaching the end of 2020, and of course also the end of Season 5 of the Folklore Podcast. Don't worry, we'll be back in the new year with a new season. 2020 has been quite a year, and we won't dwell on the negative aspects of it. But it is worth thinking about the good things that have arisen from all of the troubles. For the podcast, we created extra bonus content and the book club, and increased the amount of output we could put out each month in an effort to keep people entertained, and we hope to keep this up with your support. We also created the bigger, ticketed Folklore Podcast Lectures series, and this will carry on next year too. The next lecture looks at a British vampire case and takes place on Saturday the 9th of January, online. You can find details at bit.ly slash tfplectures. We have covered a lot of topics over the last five years, from folklore to fairy tales, myths to monsters. But we've not yet looked at the very important area of song within folklore, as a means of storytelling and cultural recording. Today we redress the balance on this with my guests, folk singers and musicians Sandra Kerr and John Faulkner. Sandra and John are long-established experts in the genre of folk song, and will be well known to many listeners, especially in the UK, as the voices of Madeline the Rag Doll and Gabriel the Toad from the 1970s children's TV classic Bagpuss, for which they wrote and performed all of the music. Bagpuss, which comes up in the interview, is well worth watching online for anyone who hasn't seen it, as it's a brilliant demonstration of the use of folk story and tradition for children. You'll find episodes on YouTube. One technical apology for this episode. Although Sandra's voice is very clear, the connection to Ireland where John lives was not great when we recorded this episode. I've done as much as I can to improve it. I've had to take out one or two parts where the voice was not very clear at all. Please do stick with it as best you can, because there is a lot of really good stuff in this episode, and I hope it doesn't mar your enjoyment too much. To lead into the interview, here's a short snippet of Sandra and John performing live at an event discussing the programme. Time. 
So thank you both very much for coming on and joining me. Um, the podcast has been running for uh, some time now. We're in our, coming to the end of our fifth season, in fact, and we've covered a lot in our time of folklore, folk tales, folk traditions, customs, but we haven't focused as much as I would have liked until now on folk song. Um, we've, we've looked at particular elements. We have an episode on um, lullabies and the importance of lullabies in folklore, for example, and um, and how they're used in different countries. But I wanted to look at the broader picture uh, and look at the importance to our cultural heritage, that's wherever we are in the world, of folk song, um, of which you are both exceedingly good proponents. So before we kick off, let's um, let's just start, um, Sandra, ladies first. Um, just tell everyone a little bit about your career in folk song and folk music, how you got into it, what your particular interests in that area are. <laughs> I hope you've got more than an hour. We have plenty of time. <laughs> okay. Um, like most people of my generation, I, I was led into... Uh, my own culture through um, skiff, Skiffle, uh, and which was, you know all about Skiffle, I'm sure you're far too young, but you'll have read about it, um, and was very fortunate to be um, uh, led, if you like, and um, tutored by, first of all, people like Carl Dallas, who was a folk journalist at the time and who um, kind of fed me uh, wonderful old singers like Harry Cox and Sam Lana and people like that and said, look, this is what you should be singing instead of uh, American folk songs. Um, so that was very fortunate. I, I was very taken with those old guys. I didn't hear any of the older women singers, I have to say, at that time. But then I was very fortunate and was taken up by Ewan McCall and Peggy Seeger. Um, who heard me sing from the floor at their club, the Singers Club, which uh, I'm sure you know about, but was actually a policy folk club. That is, they encouraged, <laughs> I'll put it gently, they encouraged everybody to um, to sing songs from their own uh, ethnic culture. So uh, I was very lucky to be introduced to them. They asked me to, if I would like to go and live with them and help with their children while they toured. And <clears throat> in exchange, I had them all to myself, one-to-one, um, tutoring in all kinds of things. From Ewan, it was things like folklore, singing style. Eth uh, from Peggy, it was ethnomusicology and formal musicology as well. Um, and from there, <coughs> excuse me, um, of course, John and I knew each other. And I have to say, he was an influence as well, because it was he that I first heard singing things like Woody Guthrie songs, which were totally inspirational and 
uh, helped on that pathway that I was on uh, enormously. So John and I were together and singing together very early in our folk careers. Um, and from there, it was touring, it was research, it was um, event oh, recording, lots of recording. We did fantastic amount of uh, very uh, quite specialised and esoteric stuff with you and Peggy. You know, like um, sea songs, like songs from London. Uh, we did two major LPs of songs from um, uh, London broadsides, um, A Merry Progress to London and uh, Sweet Thames Flow Softly. Anyway, lots of recording, lots of touring, um, and then eventually some writing. Now, we, I started writing when I was living with Ewan and Peggy. I must just tell you this tiny anecdote because oh. I think it's it's quite interesting um, in the kind of uh, um, appreciation of how a folk song works. When I was living with Ewan and Peggy, I was 20, 21, and part of Ewan's tutoring to me um, was to write uh, in a traditional style. And he gave me some homework, uh, which was to write a song taking a traditional theme and bringing it up to date. Okay, so what I did was um, I wrote a song about a young woman getting in the family way, her family being totally against it, but her going, well, I don't care anyway, because this is my child. Uh, and, you know, and I don't care whether I've got a husband or not, which, believe it or not, in 1962 or 63 was pretty kind of... Um, pretty kind of revolutionary. <laughs> anyway, um, so I wrote this song and I took, um, I took a song from the Northeast, which goes, um, I was a young maid, truly, and lived in Sandwich Street. I thought to marry a good man to keep me warm and neat. He's an ugly body, a bubbly body, an ill-fested soon. I have married a killman and my... Anyway, that I took that tune, the, the um, killman, and uh, I put it in the minor. Anyway, so I kind of took a traditional tune, changed the mode, and wrote the song. Anyway, 15 years later, I was doing um, a book of women's songs for and about women called My Song Is My Own, which I have to say is still a fairly iconic publication and the only one of its kind. It was a book called My Song Is My Own. And this song, What'll the Neighbours Say, which was my song, was sent to us from Scotland as a traditional song. And we Brilliant. were told... You must put this song in your book because it's traditional. <laughs> and I have to say it was sent by somebody who should have known better. But I won't tell you who that was. So, yeah. Well, uh, lots... me. It wasn't you. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> Are you sure, John? I mean, you've done good. some weird things in your life. Come on. <laughs> but doesn't that happen so often, though? I mean, I, I saw some stuff to, uh, just yesterday online uh, about the tradition of the Heather Man which is a bit, a bit like yes. a kind of barryman. Yeah, and, yeah. And, um, and um, the local shopkeepers having told people there how, you know, this celebrates Shakespeare's Twelfth Night and this <laughs> tradition has been running for 600 years. <laughs> and then a comment from my friend um, Doc Rowe from the Folklore Society, who has who spent, yeah. as you know, has spent many, many yeah. years cataloguing all that, who just said, 
I suppose I ought to admit at some point, this came out of a conversation in my lounge with a couple of people. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, the, the, it had been running for about 20 years, the Heather Man, although it, it plays on these traditional themes, of course, like so Absolutely. much folk tradition does. But yeah, I mean, a Doc had essentially come up with that idea, and here it is now, 600 years old. It's brilliant. I know, but isn't that an absolute cornerstone of what tradition and folklore is about. It basically fulfills a need in people's lives, whether it's to express what is happening in their lives or what they would like to happen in their lives or what happened in somebody else's life that they relate to or what they need socially and as far as the community is concerned to bring it together. So, of course, we create these. Uh, you know, why Why wouldn't we? It's the, it's the obvious thing to do. Street yeah. parties. You know, when I was a kid, street parties were all the thing. That wasn't a tradition, but we it was created because yes. it was what was needed. Yeah, anyway, sorry. No, 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 so no, I've gone on far too long, no, I'm sure. You no, not to. at all. Not at all. And I, but I want to come back to this point later on, the, the creation of folk song, actually. Yeah. We'll, we'll return to this later. John, how did you get into the scene? Well, I, 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 want to, I don't want to repeat everything that Sandra said, but it's very similar kind of a uh, very similar pathway, really, because, um, as she said, we knew each other earlier on. It was through, basically, again, through Skiffle. Skiffle was rampant. <laughs> I mean, ramp- really rampant in the sense that it was the most popular form of, and I think a very good reason for that, is that, um, you know, looking at the history of, of, of music after the Second World War was so exact and awful as it had been in the 19, a lot of the night prior to the war and all that, that um, people were looking for something, uh, mainly because there was a great revolu- sort of revolutionary movement in every sphere after the war. People were looking for something different, and they found something that was homegrown, and also there's been the influence of the American culture, realized on people in the armed forces and all that, had certainly had an influence. It's through jazz, through the blues, through all this, and people wanted music that was um, they could actually own and, and be part of. So they, they, what happened, what emerged was skiffle. And of course, like everybody else, like many people of our generation, we had skiffle groups. And, uh, we were, we were lucky. The one that I was in, we were very lucky. I was about 15, I suppose, at the time. And, uh, it just so happened that our skiffle group, where we used to rehearse, we we were doing it, we were practicing one day, practicing the two and a half chords that we knew on the guitar, and, uh, you know, the washboard and the teacher space. And uh, we looked down the garden, it was kind of time, and we looked in the garden, back onto the garden of the, this house we were in, Poison's house, and who was listening to us but Ronnie Donegan, who happened to live in the house opposite. <laughs> yeah. he, 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 we couldn't believe it. We didn't know him lived there. We've got fans him. And he said, that sounded pretty good, lads. You know, look, here's another couple of chords. And he thought it was a few months. <laughs> then we sort of did, you know, we got to know him sort of well, fairly well. This, and this was just as he had become a huge, massive hit with the Rock Island Line. Anyway. So that was my introduction to it. Like, like Sandra, I then, uh, you know, got involved with the the 
the policy of the singers club which I, which a lot of people at the time in the in the skiffle movement didn't like because they were mad about american old-time music and so on, which i was and i still am i have to say but what we did was we we, we got the message from you and McCall, basically saying look you have to find the music and songs of your own heritage and you know and that because otherwise if you don't do it nobody else did it mm. and so we did that and that's that's that was my introduction to it and then i mean got moving on quite a lot later um when i i got interested in 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 what is erroneously called celtic music i think because it doesn't mean anything celtic music you know um <laughs> the term is too amorphous and it's not really very scientific but i got involved in irish music through listening to a lot of irish music in london basically and um from there on uh, eventually I, I i came to live in ireland but i mean that's that's a longer story but basically it's the same story as Saudi. and we we played together sang together now I didn't do any really, really do any writing that day. But I did write one or two songs. I mean, Sandra mentioned uh, the idea of taking a traditional song or a traditional theme and trying to write something like it. What I did, what I did at one stage, I can't even remember the song now. But um, uh, I was impressed with a Woody Guthrie song, which was um, basically about how trade unions through the history, through history, and one of the lines in it was. He was the straw boss on the pyramid. He was kind of a prejudice <laughs> for the slaves on the pyramids. And I thought that might be a nice theme to move into the modern context. And at the time, there was a huge building working strike going on. I don't remember that, Sandra, where the, the I couple do. had locked themselves into a huge, huge crane as a protest and sat there for days on end. And so I kind of kind of adapted that and, uh, and wrote, Penned a, a bit of a song about that particular strike, and uh, trying to align that with the way this has been a continuation of things through history, as mm. Woody Guthrie had done. You know? I mean, I don't Fantastic. think the song, I don't think the song got much, didn't get much leverage really. But I think actually Stamerton Bridge did record it. I can't really remember the title of the song. But anyway, <laughs> so I didn't write many songs at the time. Uh, not until much later. But the protest song, there you go, that, that's a whole subgenre, isn't it, of, of, of folk mm. song in its own right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we're, John's just begun to touch on something that was incredibly, uh, an incredibly important element of what we were doing, and that is the politics. I think from mm. very early on, we were very much driven by what our political stance was, which both fed into um, what kind of artists we became within the folk movement, and also informed what we wrote, uh, how we worked, uh, and informed us, you know, the, the movement itself informed us in terms of what we felt we should be writing, where we should be singing, uh, what repertoire we should be garnering from the huge choice that we had, you know. I mean, and I have to say again, John was there before me, um, although he's slightly younger than me, which is really galling. Anyway, <laughs> Um, but John was already very politically active at the age of, what, 17, 18. Mm. Uh, and um, I, very soon after we met, I became, I, I think I joined the Young Communist League. Um, 
Oh, uh, just a bit later when I was living with you and Peggy, I think. But um, but the politics and um, uh, and what we felt about the world and what we felt the songs communicated about the world were, was a huge, a hugely important factor mm. in in what drove us as musicians and singers and writers eventually. We look at the evolution of folk song so so way way back before the folk revival we go back to to early song uh, and its evolution through to what we know now has it always been used in the same way do you think or has it been adopted for lots of different ways and in the same as folk tales often are i i think if you look at the history for instance of broadsides Hmm. uh and, and the whole broadside industry from the very earliest times, those tomes, those uh, written, you know, we sometimes know who wrote them, not always, by any means, they were highly political. They were squibs, they were rants against uh, the political situations of the time or a, a, a section of the community, the ruling class or whatever, Weeks, Tories, it doesn't matter. They always had that element. Um, so just in terms of what we have in, uh, as far as evidence of written, written down uh, material, we know that that was always uh, an element. If you look at the ballads, of course, the ballad tradition, the classical ballad tradition, which informed the broadside uh, tradition, obviously, or uh, um, industry, obviously. But if you go back to the very earliest of the ballads, you know, already um, you can see that like our society, it's totally class um, ridden. Totally class ridden, you know, so you get your, of course, the very earliest ones, as far as we know, are uh, very ritualistic. They have lots of references to, um, that, that we often don't recognize anymore, you know, uh, symbolisms of animals and, uh, uh, plants and all the rest of it. But if you look at the, the human element of the earliest ballads, what's going on there? And you look at it and it's about, uh, rich, rich young women running off with trumpeters, or it's rich young men going off with serving maids and being cast out by their family. You know, it's the, the class element, if you like, is always there because that's been our society, you know, uh, from, uh, way, way back, pre, way pre-industrial revolution and all the rest. So for me, that's a hugely important element and goes back to what John was saying about the people who sang this material were people who didn't have in, have access to any other uh, outlet for their either their experiences or their opinions, you yeah. know. This is the music of the voiceless, if you like. Anyway. And, of course, because because often a lot of traditional song is generated in the lower end of the class system then when we look at early song these are the people who have not benefited from education they aren't necessarily literate it's an easy way isn't it to pass on oral traditions it's it's actually a lot easier to remember a song and song lyrics than it is to remember a traditional story and the themes of that so when, when you think about the fact that stuff went on that way, 
why do you think folk song now is so underrepresented compared to fairy tale or folk story? I think I think the one of the reasons is it's the difference between the difference between the spoken word and the song word. Uh, you know, songs songs are not poetry, and poetry is not song. So there's a big difference here. The songs the songs would have been sung at fairs on the streets by street sellers. You talk about the world side, for example. They would have been sung at sort of social gatherings and uh and in communities that were maybe quite fairly close knit and uh self sufficient in many ways. Uh I think the Industrial Revolution had a huge influence on that and did did actually was responsible for destroying a lot of not just the songs but the music that went with the songs as well. So you had a situation where um you know I mean I mean in general terms I think a lot of it, dis- a lot of it in in England anyway, disappeared in mu- large areas of England. I think in parts of in parts of uh, England it didn't, like particularly in the northeast, where there's very strong musical tradition as well as the song tradition, it didn't disappear. But in large parts of industrial Britain and in the south of England, it definitely disappeared. Or was, uh, I think, you know, stripped of its of its power. And speak of its of its blood, yeah. if you like. And I think the the uh, the proof of that is when you think of all the all the great collections of songs that were done prior to or up to the early part of the Industrial Revolution, has this incredible richness. They have incredible that you know um, diversity of richness that did not exist in the recorded music so much. After the after the effect of the industrial revolution, I mean, there were still great um, collections, people collecting songs, recording, field singers, all that across the world. But a lot of that that has been diminished in the last, certainly in the last hundred years. I think with tales, folk tales, they survived in a different way because they were written down, they were in books, and they were. Uh, generally speaking, became part of the broader concept of what you think of as listening. Yeah, that is a that's a whole different arena. So, uh, how do how do you think I, either of you um, folk song generally has evolved from from those early times? We go back to medieval times and before, in the way that song is used through through to what we might class as folk song now. How has that evolution progressed? <laughs> Unevenly, I would say, <laughs> uh, with great difficulty. I mean, it's it's a, a truism to say that, you know, at one time, the music we're talking about, the, the traditional songs, ballads, um, uh, uh, sea sh- work songs, sea shantings, shanties, lullabies, all that stuff, was once the functional music and the recreational music of people who, for m- the most part, had access to no other um, uh, expressions or means of entertainment. Once people like Sharp come along, uh, with a mission, that is, that is to pre- a preserve and b propagate um, uh, 
traditional folk song by getting it into schools, the whole game changes hugely, hugely differently. Uh, a, a, a real change in the evolution of how the music is perceived, how it's uh, passed on, um, and all. Uh, and how it influences other musics, of course, because you can't, you can't in many ways, once, um, once it's become a more uh, uh, popular medium, if you like, uh, through publishing and then recording, um, you can't separate it from the fact that there's other musics are, that are in the same arena. So you get all your great composers your Vaughan Williams, your Butterworths, all the rest of it um, are being influenced by traditional song. But I think you have to look at that period, the early 1900s, as an absolute game changer as far as the music is concerned. It becomes something else. For a start, it's actually, um, what's the word I want? It's going to be influenced by the preconceptions uh, that the collectors and publishers of the music have themselves so you know there's sharp and all the rest of them with this wonderful sense of an idyll uh, where uh, only the rural folk sang traditional songs so that's where they go to collect them because that's where they think it was you know it's that kind of those kinds of influences and i'm sure that earlier collectors have the same you know, um, uh, conceptions, ideas, uh, principles, um, uh, uh, prejudices even about what the music was about and where it should be. But I think for me, that's an absolutely crucial changing point in how the music um, is developed. Yeah, absolutely. I agree, totally agree with that. I mean, what you had, what you had at that time, like uh, 1900, around that time was... You had that kind of concentration and infatuation with primitivism in, in as you just said, that, that people thought, some of those people thought, well, you only find folk songs in the countryside, which is the, is the idyll, as you say. And that was really popular. You see it in painting, you see it in picture, you see it in, the, in everything that everybody thought. And then this, this was a reaction against the industrial revolution. How can you force people to live in those dark colored mills? You need people to go back to rural uh, life in order to survive, in order to, in order to flourish. In order to, which, of course, might have been a nice idea, but completely impractical because things had happened. Okay? Mm-hmm. Not only that, but we thought that Pokemon only existed in a rural setting. Of course, Pokemon had evolved into an industrial setting as well, as we know that they're incredible. incredible Collections of industrial folk songs, which I have to say was a surprise to me when I was going out until I saw, you know, um, steam whistle ballads and uh, that, that you and Nicole had collected together. Fantastic songs, and you know, the, the Scottish industrial kind of art land. I mean, fantastic. I mean, I was singing songs, but I didn't even know that I didn't even know what the, the dialect that I was singing was about at all. And Scots. Things like the, the, the swan neck valve and all that kind of thing. Those industrial, cynical, clever comic songs um, that came directly from the industrial setting. So, yeah, it, it was a game changer. And additive, I don't want to just repeating really what Sandra said, but it was also the invention of recording. Uh, mm. You had uh, wax recordings, you had 
people actually record, and so the, the beginning of a whole new industry of propagating music and so on, and in which folk songs were finding it really, really difficult to compete. I mean, but they did compete in terms of sometimes when the music from Scotland and Ireland went to America and became part of a whole new thing there at, at that same time around mm. the the end of the the, um, the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, you had the, the, the whole industry rampaging its way through popular culture of recording. Mm. I mean, just amazing. I mean, that had mm. to change. <clears throat> At one time, we, we used to celebrate folk song in schools, you know, primary school maypole dancing was a thing, folk song was a big thing in music lessons, the themes were looked at. Have we lost all that now? Are we, are we missing a trick with that in, in our children's education, do you think? You, I mean, you're referring to the National Songbook. Well, yes, of course, that was part of it, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, but when you think of that, I mean, those were designed, I'm sure Sandra would agree with that. A lot of those things, they were designed by people like Cecil Sharp, and they had barbarized everything to the extent, mm. again, part of that whole thing of, oh, you know, rural people are really, you know, there's, there's, there's nothing bawdy or sensual <coughs> about folk song. It's all very pure and it's very rural and all that. Thing. You and I, and we all learned songs from the National Songbook at school, you know, like this. I can't. I hated them so much, I can't remember the names of them now. Yes. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I, do you know, this is the only place I'm sure I'm going to differ with John because I absolutely loved them. You know, Barbara Allen. I mean, it very much depends on the setting as well, you know, and who was who was um, teaching these songs to you. But I loved in music lessons at school, I loved hearing the folk songs. Didn't know they were folk songs. Nobody used the term in schools. Mm. And I loved doing country dancing every Monday morning. Uh, I loved all those things. And I loved the Maypole stuff. Um, now, having said that, of course, I did have a slight in... Uh, to that music because my grandmother for instance who was a Kentish woman um, used to sing I remember her singing Barbara Allen she had a lovely version of Barbara Allen that she used to sing so I mean I think I had an association with it but I um, I, I just love that stuff and back to what you're asking very specifically Mark are we missing this now is this not any more part of our children's education in schools for a start um, generally speaking yes it is because all the arts um, uh, you know and their value and their richness uh, is not being given to our children as part of their education anymore uh, for a whole number of political reasons which we don't need to go into but just let's say the bloody Tories don't like the arts and they don't like the working class having them let me rest the case there but so the arts have gone from education however depending which region and I'm sure John will have things to say about this in the Irish situation um, 
depending where you are, there is still fantastic traditional music going on within schools, but it is not part of the national curriculum. Mm. It is there, as perhaps it always was, because of the individual passions, uh, concerns, interests and skills of individual teaching staff, you know. So in the northeast where I live, uh, you know, schools had their school Kayleigh bands when we had Kayleys before mm. lockdown and all that. Schools have their own Kaylee bands. They have, um, they still have projects that go on where they link up with other um, ethnic uh, musics and art, dance and so on in their region. I've been part of those myself. But generally speaking, I think um, the question is quite a leading one and is leading us to say, no, they don't have that. Mm. Uh, and and as somebody who went on into further education, um, I've just retired from Newcastle University, where I was in the folk degree course teaching there, we could see over the, what, 17 years I was there, uh, the difference that the lack of arts and particularly music was having on the quality of students that were coming into the the music courses. Mm-hmm. On the folk degree course, people were for the most part coming because they came from either folky families or had been fortunate enough to come under the influence of organisations like the Rent Trust down in your part of the world. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Folk Works up in my part of the world, EFDSS in London, etc., etc. Sorry, I've gone on a bit, but I do think it's an incredibly important area. Mm. And I'm sure... I'm sure that for John, you know, there'll be a different set of circumstances and answers to that question. Mm. Yeah, and John, bearing in mind that Ireland is so much better than England at preserving folklore generally, we know this from the the sizeable folklore archives, which are beautifully digitised and searchable and and available in Ireland. Is the situation with folk song very much different as well? I think it is a bit different because the... the, um... A lot of what, a lot of the archives, for example, here in, uh, in Dublin, are concentrated on the music, and not so much. I think one of the big contentious things that, that that singers have in Ireland is that there isn't enough attention paid to the song traditions. The music tradition, the dance music tradition, is incredibly popular. You get people in, as Sandra was saying, in schools. A lot of the teachers who are also musicians do it off their own back, not a part of the curriculum, but they teach, you know, fiddles, concertina, pipes, uh, flute, accordion, all these instruments are incredibly popular. Um, Irish dancing is incredibly popular, largely because of the success of river dance, but, um, you know, that, all that kind of thing, there's not so much concentration on the song, unfortunately. But there, so, uh, for example, the, um, the, I think music is taught, generally speaking, really well in Ireland. So there are an incredible number of, uh, you know, young musicians that are coming up with very, very high quality. Um, but unfortunately, not so true with the singing. I mean, there are certain areas of the country, like in Connemara and West Galway, where there's a serious attention to uh, singing what, you know, what, what is known as Shannos and old style singing. And so, so there's still a, a lot of competitive um, activity in that respect. So consequently, a lot of really, really good uh, young singers 
in that area. Similar similar thing in Donegal, but in other parts of the country, no, not so much. Um, you find that you, you'll find that the singing, the singing tradition, is stronger in the Gaelic, where Irish is spoken the first time. So that the songs in that tradition are being kept alive and are flourishing. And, and there's a lot of encouragement there. But in the non-Gaelic areas, there isn't so much. There's, there's not so much concentration and a development of song in the English language, which I think is a great thing. Do you think we're doing enough, either of you, now to actively collect folk songs still as well? Uh, and I suppose the other side of that question as well is, is if we are, do we now suffer less than we used to from this problem of bowdlerisation now that we're not necessarily collecting just using you know, white upper-class male collectors in these areas and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because instinctively I would say, uh, really, is there much left to collect? And then, out of the blue... You know, you get a singer like Thomas McCarthy, who turns up in London at the Islington Folk Club or the King and Queen Folk Club, uh, run by Ken and um, uh, Ken Hall and Peter Webb, uh, with a, a wonderful repertoire. A very uh, he's a traveller. Uh, his family have their own repertoire of songs. Completely, you know, suddenly you think when all the singers have been collected and discovered, and we know everything about the repertoire suddenly somebody turns up like that there are, there is clearly work to be done still it seems to me um what i think we have to do is to create a situation where that can happen now it happened with thomas um because there was a a welcoming folk club setting in which he could gradually immerse himself which he could immerse himself in and through which he could be discovered if you like and feel comfortable about singing and from there you know has gone on to be very very famous indeed um so i think there's a necessity for us to not just to say um that collecting is now not on the agenda anymore. I think it clearly is. But we have to say, well, where? You know, is the pub? The pub, when you think about the role of the pub in collecting, mm. you know, and how that slanted, for instance, what was collected, the fact that women didn't go to pubs, for instance, so none of them, none of them... Um, uh, Lark cries to Candleford, what's her name, Thompson, uh, in her book, she talks about the amount of singing, folk singing or songs, folk songs sung in the local pub. Mm. All men, the women were at home, she said, singing their own songs and then doesn't tell us what they were because <laughs> yeah. nobody thought that was worthwhile. You know, I mean, there's, I think there's clearly work to be done. Not on the scale that it was, but it, we need to, it seems to me, create the settings in which that can happen. And arguably, I suppose as well, we need the collectors and we don't have those sorts of people collecting in the way that we used to. Uh, I mean, we're, we're very lucky. We still have Doc Rowe, who's, who's obviously still actively collecting um, custom and tradition. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm very lucky in that Jacqueline Patton lives not very far away from here. And I know Jacqueline um slightly and, and bob and jacqueline Patton's archive is at least you know at the british library and, and yeah. available but do we have people like that 
anymore doing this kind of work even. I think one of the things that is happening, though, is that young singers over here, and I can think of three or four well-known young singers, are doing what you and I did, John, um, back in the day when we were doing the London albums, for instance. They are trawling the broadside collections, for mm. instance, in their, in building a repertoire. And I think Clearly this, this, clearly, this is not folks on collecting, but it is, um, if you like, uncovering and rediscovering yeah, areas yeah. of the repertoire. That is certainly happening. Yeah. And I think that's all to the good, all to the good. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. and turning up some very interesting stuff, also some deeply boring stuff, but that will happen, you know. Well, <laughs> it's always it always did. I mean, I can think of one or two that we turned up on our London albums that they kind of go, yeah, right, okay. Well, there sometimes there's a reason why these have not been sung for a century or so. Sure. Now, sure. I'm, yeah. I'm aware of the time, but I, I'm going to move on slightly because um, I have to. I'm afraid talk about. <laughs> Okay, I make no apologies about this. No, my wife Tracy is working on the other side of the office from me. Say hello. Hi, hello, <laughs> hi, Tracy. Childhood heroes are in my office. Yes, so, so, <laughs> Tracy's right. You know, we we grew up with this program. Okay, so so you know, you 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 two are partly responsible for raising us. Okay, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Good work. We turned out okay. But you I, did well. I, I, we need to talk about this because, of course, uh, it, it is, in all seriousness, a really, really fondly remembered but really, really culturally important part of our heritage. Now, um, the UK audience... Um, are going to be going yes to this. Um, and in fact, on, on Twitter, when I said that I was recording this interview, I said, did anybody want me to ask anything in particular? Basically, everybody just came back and said, just say thank you. Oh. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it means an awful lot. Um, to, to, to my overseas listeners, uh, this is not going to mean quite so much, um, depending on where they are. So... Um, Sandra, can you very briefly explain the premise of Bagpuss as a piece of children's television? Piece of children's television. It was uh, an animated, partly animated series with handmade puppets. The whole feel of it was very handmade. Um, the setting was a shop which didn't sell anything. But in this shop, there was Bagpuss, who was a, a wonderfully thoughtful, magical uh, cat who could think thoughts and they would take uh, actual shape. Uh, there was a little uh, group of mice who were once described as the proletariat in the uh, in the films who did all the work. There was um, Gabriel the Toad, who was a genuine, very benign character who played the banjo, except on the soundtrack he didn't. He played the mandolin and the fiddle. There was a horribly bossy rag doll called Madeline, which was me and you oh, might no. well... Might well say that was um, a bit of typecasting, so there you go. Um, and the whole idea is that uh, the little girl, Emily, who owned the shop, would bring broken or lost things to the shop, uh, ask Bagpuss 
um, how, oh, there was Professor Yaffle who represented the intellectual uh, pretensions. Of because, the, of course, um, he was based on Bertrand Russell, wasn't he, as a character? Well, some allegedly. people say, allegedly. some people say, yeah, allegedly. Uh, lots of theories, lots yes. of theories. Yes. But, we'll we'll um, maybe talk about theories in a minute, but go on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, just to finish quickly, the idea was that things would come into the shop that were broken or lost, needed mending or, um, or re, uh, recycling, I suppose, reusing. And um, Bagpuss and the mice and everybody there would see to it that that happened through a whole series of stories, uh, legends and lots of music and song, which would help to bind all the story together of that yes. broken or, or lost yeah. item. And, and, and then it would be left in the shop. And of course, that's the, the, the song the element song. is what I want yeah. to, to focus on. You two, yes, you played mandolin, as you say, Sandra, who a lot of people don't realise had a surname, no, no. in fact. Oh, Madeline, yes, Madeline Remnant. Madeline Remnant. And yes. a lot of people don't even know that she had a surname. <laughs> no. there you go. But, but actually, you didn't just play Madeline either, did you? Because you were kind of um, mouse... We had to be mice as well. Yeah. We had to be mice as well. Um, the the mice were John and me and Oliver. And Oliver always said that he was the out of tune mouse uh, when we sang. <laughs> and and bless his lovely heart, he was the out of tune mouse. <laughs> but I think that added to the charm of the whole thing. And, and John, um, you it, played you played Gabriel. Sorry, sorry. John, you yeah, played Gabriel. Um, Gabriel, the, the benign toad. The benign, the benign toad. toad. Yes. Uh, and, yeah. and who I've seen described as being being like an uncle figure in many ways, Ooh. actually, as well. Do you think that's fair? Who? Well, Gabriel. Gabriel. Yes, I think so. But the, the benign uncle who didn't say very much, but kind of, um, you know, grunted occasionally. And, uh, <laughs> And agreed with everybody. And <laughs> <laughs> over an easy life, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> not, not a piece of typecasting there, John. I don't think. <laughs> so, so Gabriel and Madeline are storytellers, essentially, aren't they? In this this premise, so so they have responsibility yeah. for a very important part of the program, which it, which is the kind of fairy tale song element which tells the story behind whatever artifact is brought in um and in fact looking at the the episode list for bagpuss there are some very you know big folklore related themes here aren't there we've got a story about mermaids we've got um owls we've got um well in fact um, giants yes yeah. Yeah. yeah um we've and and we've got and this is an interesting one that people don't think about perhaps um the the chocolate biscuit mill okay. <laughs> now now in fact another question which somebody asked me was um <laughs> who's got the chocolate biscuit mill because i really need one of those right now <laughs> so, <laughs> oh. the, the chocolate biscuit yes mill is, but we all know yeah oh i was just going to say we all know that what, what what chocolate biscuits are made out out of well, is breadcrumbs and butter, butter beans. beans. So yeah. they could make their own, really. <laughs> they could. They? They're just lazy. Yeah. But, uh, but, but even that be- is important, isn't it? Because although it turns out to be you know a, a hoax story in which one of the mice is wheeling a biscuit round to the back of the mill and posting it back through the slot again. <laughs> in fact, in folklore, the mill as a supernatural 
thing is actually really key and really important. And, and the Miller is a very strong part yeah. of, of folklore. And, and that is one aspect, actually, which I did want to talk to you about. Now, the Miller's Tale, which is the song that illustrates this episode, um, mm. is the most well-respected, most well-known yes. song in the whole thing and is constantly cited as being a vital song in that whole thing. Uh, you two are responsible for this song. Yeah. Um, it's not a traditional song. Uh, it, well, it is now, I suppose, but it wasn't a traditional song. You wrote yeah. it. Why has that <laughs> happened? Why is it thought of in that way? I have a, an opinion on this, but I'm not going to say what it is yet. Why do you think that song oh. has come out that way? John, do you want to say? I'm happy to, but you go ahead. If you, uh, you, you, you may have different ideas, so go, yeah, carry on, John. Yeah, oh, we will. Go ahead, go ahead, um, I, th- I think there's a couple of reasons. There, there are loads. Um, first of all, I think it's because it's so firmly rooted in... Um, the seasons and the processes, the work processes. So you could say that it spans both the kind of um, uh, pre-industrial, a uh, 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 kind of rural idyll, and the industrial, because um, Oliver, who of course had an input into that song mm. with um, the text, you know, we adapted the text because there, once the tune was made for it, it needed to change. The text needed to change, as, and that happened with quite a few songs that Oliver had written the text for. Um, I, so I think it's about those two things, the rural and the industrial. Oliver loved um, industrial terminology, technical terminology of all kinds you know uh, so that's why it's got all those wonderful things like uh, that both refer to the uh, the milling process the reaping process all those so I think that's one of the reasons I think the other reason and I have absolutely no idea where it came from but I think the tune curiously sounds like it's been around for a very long time yes it does I can does. only put yeah, I can only... Now, it is not, to my mind, um, based on a traditional tune, on any one particular tune. It's it's based on a tune type. Um, it isn't modal. It's just a straightforward, uh, you know, major tune. But I think that kind of... Da da dee dum ba da dee dum ba dee 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 could come from any chorus of any mm. uh, lyrical folk song. And I think that's it. It has echoes of types of tune that we know very, very well. So for me, that's that's um, two of the reasons. What do you think, John? Do you think that's fair? Well, no, I, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. I think when you when you, you, you get something as rural as, as the, the imagery in that song, um, and then you mix it with... Um, you know, combine harvesters and stuff like that, uh, combine the, the wheat and those those lovely lines in it that are like that. You get one or two of those lines, by the way, which I can never remember to think when we do it. I hope we get it wrong. <laughs> They're so good, I get it wrong every time. <laughs> but but um, no, I, I, no, I agree with totally with, with what Simon said there. And the tune is, you know, I mean, Every time I hear it and sing it, I think this is this is this has to be traditional, you know. Mm. But of mm. course, 
it's not. It's invented. Yeah, I, I think, I, yes, Sandra, I, I also agree with you. And I think it is, this seasonal element, I think, is key to this. Because if we think about the whole concept of, and I hate the term pagan because it, it's, it's too broad a term, but you, if I say it, you will know exactly what I mean. Yeah. This yeah. whole idea of, of the, the wheel of the year and, and the seasonal elements that are associated with nature-based yeah. religions, for example, and that sort of thing, <clears throat> that is, from, from a, a, a Jungian perspective, that is an archetype which everybody has embedded in their subconscious. So to have a song that is purely about that, I think is why it resonates so strongly yeah. with so many people. I think it is just That's... that whole concept. That's very interesting, Mark. I absolutely agree with that. And if I could extend that a little mm. bit uh, uh, and divert it rather into the characters themselves in Bagpuss, there is actually online a whole Jungian character analysis of each of them. Yes. You didn't do it, did you? It wasn't me, but I have what? read it. Uh, no, it wasn't me, ah! but I have read it. Oh, it wasn't? And, no, no, no. It wasn't yeah. me, but I have read it. And uh, in fact, a a friend of mine has also written on a very similar subject to do with Bagpuss. Um, yes, Bagpuss yeah. is a pagan deity. And I, I, it's yeah. an interesting, an interesting <laughs> concept. <laughs> I know. I loved it, and I think yeah. it's absolutely true. I do. I mean, it's it's curious, or perhaps not, that there's a Jungian analysis, and then there's a Marxist analysis yeah. as well, which is fabulous. I love that one. That's where the the Mises, the proletariat, comes yes. in. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yes, they're both really interesting. Yeah. And what is fascinating is that people care enough to do that. Yeah. How how extraordinary, John. We had no idea did we when we were doing that do you think <laughs> I, was, I was about to be facetious there and say of course we did <laughs> <laughs> no, no we didn't we didn't we had no idea at all i mean we did you you know you just couldn't begin to believe that it had the longevity that it's had mm-hmm. also that it's it's um i suppose if we had if we'd been more objective about it at the time we might have suspected that it would, but then we would have been accused of being sort of up ourselves. You know? mm. <laughs> <laughs> of course, there were only 13 of them as well. So yeah. just, yeah. you know, a mere 13 stories to make yep. such a difference over such a long period of time is testament to yeah. this whole concept of using these traditional songs, traditional ideas, or at least songs that reflect that, um, and how that is important. You know, I mean, it's Boney King of Nowhere as a song. We find now, radio, you know, Radiohead have... have, um, have worked yes! That song. So, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it really does make a difference. I know. They're, yeah. but, but they're also, huge fans, apparently. Yes, yeah, yeah, <clears throat> I've heard that. But also, the, you, you were saying about the Miller's song being non-traditional in the sense that, you know, it was completely constructed, although it does sound like it's traditional. But you did use traditional influences, didn't you? I mean, in some other things. So the, the, the mice, the round that the mice sing, yeah, that, that yeah. had an influence, didn't it? Oh, my gosh, yeah. That came directly from um, Summer is a Coming In, yeah. which, according to... Um, 
let me see, not traditional tunes, Chapel's popular music of the olden times, um, has that down as a 13th century piece harmonised in the Northumbrian fashion, which was news to me because I knew it long before I had a copy of Chapel's popular music of the olden time. But um, yes, again, all we did was take the tune and put it in the minor and... Ch- uh, no, no, we didn't. Um, we took the tune and changed the time signature from four four uh, from six eight four four. Right. So original. We will wash it. We will splash it. We will whatever we'll do with it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So you know, not um, not not hugely changed. But again, you know, if you if you've taken something like that from the tradition, it's still got its genetic makeup in a sense, hasn't it? Mm. It's still yes. got, and certainly. If nothing else, it just has has those echoes of structure, uh, form and structure and so on. Yeah. Did did Oliver and Peter um, deliberately draw on these kind of traditional folkloric aspects for for this because they felt them to be important in the same way as you did with the music, do you think? That's an interesting question. Um, I'm not sure about Peter. We didn't have nearly as much to do with Peter, did we, John, as no. we had with Oliver? Um, yeah. And I think, oh, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I just think Oliver was. I think Oliver was pretty, pretty much aware of where we were coming from and what, and and his. I think his stories were were very much informed with, from you know. A, a real knowledge of folklore and, and legend and and, and mythology, mm. which, obviously, which is obviously the case with the, the owls of Athens and all that, you know. Yeah. And I mean, I think the the um, no, I think we had it grounded in all that. And I think that it just so I think it just so happened that where we were at the time and we were so kind of involved in in uh, folk song and uh, folklore in general. That we just just kind of meet together at a, at a very crucial time, yes. and I think that's probably why it worked. Mm. And it was, it was, I think it was, more, it was as much luck as anything else. Mm. As I mean, yeah. Oh yeah, um, I I like to add something though because a thought occurs to me, which is that yes, there was happenstance kind of going on there. But my sense is also, John, I don't know, think about this. We ha- I don't think we've talked about this. But my sense is also that when we turned up there with, what, seven or eight instruments and started playing and singing to Oliver, um, that actually that was a, a fairly important element in his concept of where the stories were going he hadn't written them all by then by any means and my sense was always that um he bumped up our characters uh, a lot more once he'd met us and we played for him because before that he'd only heard us on a soundtrack you know of, of another series that we'd done the music for yeah, Sam on Boff's Island. But do you know? Do you not think, John? That I mean, I don't want it to sound immodest in any way, but I do think that once he heard what the capabilities of the instruments, for instance, was, yeah, yeah. what our capabilities were sure. as singers, um, 
and the fact that we were actually quite nice. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah. I mean, he probably never heard the the mountain dulcimer before, or, or mm. the auto harp, and probably not much of the concertina. But he, when he heard them actually live, I think they were probably an inspiration to him. And he, he, he probably, yeah, I think you're right. He would have been influenced by the the real sound of uh, acoustic instruments like that that weren't the guitar. So, yes, you know, exactly. Yes. And, you know, and I think he, he, that, that would have been a very important factor in it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and he always said that um, the reason he got to us eventually was that anyway he was looking for a completely different sound to... Uh, for the, for the um, Bagpour series of films. He'd always used um, Vernon Elliott before, who was a brilliant uh, uh, classical musician and composer and arranger. And they were delightful, <coughs> absolutely delightful, uh, the soundtracks that, that Vernon did. But we couldn't be more different to that. And yeah. I think that was why it worked. Yeah. You know, yeah. he was looking for something that was completely the opposite yeah. to Vernon's music. And I think... Well, we, we had a lot... We, uh, here, as you say, we, we had a lot of... Uh, we had a lot of instruments in the in the shop locker, so to speak. So if yeah. you wanted something that would be sound... Oh, can you give me anything that sounds like that? No? Yeah. You, you were given something that sounded like that or, you know... Um, conjured up a particular kind of sound, you know? Mm. Absolutely, yes. absolutely. Oh, the best one, <laughs> the best one, and you can hear us giggling on the soundtrack, was the uh, the, the bagpipes, John, do you remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was made out, yeah, I think you constructed it, actually, didn't you? Out of... Yeah. There was a kind of farty balloon thing and a, a plastic whistle, uh, or two or three, because you had drones with it. And yeah. you actually managed to play a tune on that completely Heath Robinson toy uh, kind of bagpipe. And it, you can hear us giggling when you're yeah. playing it. It's just wonderful. We did yeah. have a lot of fun doing it, I have to say. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I, 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 often, I often wondered, and still wonder, uh, whether, whether a lot of people in Scotland were offended by all that. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. I mean, you know, you know how, how seriously they take the pipes up there. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I love the pipes. But, yeah. But, uh, but isn't it testament, though, at the end of the day? The, I mean, this wraps up everything we've just been talking about, doesn't it? The, the fact that hearing those instruments, hearing what they're capable of, um, hearing the sound resonates to that degree that you then go, do you know what, these have to play a larger part in this whole concept because that's going to pin the story down. Mm. And it does just hark back to the, the whole tradition of folk song, doesn't it, and why it's so important to everybody. And yes, and why, yes, why it works, you yeah. know. I mean, uh, if you, uh, we probably haven't got time, but there is scope for a, a real serious analysis of the types of song that are in there and mm. the function that they serve. I mean, some of them are ballad structure. Even the bony king of nowhere, really, you know, it tells us a narrative from beginning to end. It has logic, it has character, it has development 
learnt all the rest of it, just like uh, ballads do. So there's everything from those to, you know, the nonsense songs, there's the work songs, they're all in there. Um, so yes, you know, if you like, all folk song life is in there at, at yeah. some point. Yeah, and, and there, it is just, a, it's a collection of things that should be traditional but aren't, isn't it? And Uncle, <laughs> Uncle Fiedler is another example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of concept. Everything feels like it's been around forever, even if it hasn't. And it really does play to that concept. I mean, I I, I think, yeah, just mentioning Uncle Fiedel there, I think the Uncle Fiedel song and the the story are are just amazingly philosophical. Because, Mm. you know, it really, it, it almost says everything you don't need this, you don't need that to be happy, or you can, you can make happiness out of anything. And, it, and, it, and it's actually, that's, that's an incredibly kind of zen concept. Yeah. And, and, and folklore, folk story, folk song has always been used in that way, hasn't it? You know, it, it's, it's instructive as well as entertaining. It tells a oh. story. It has this meaning. Absolutely. I mean, just one other element, which John touched on just now. I mean, one of the other reasons I think it was A, before its time, and B, of its time, and is now of our time, is this whole emphasis on reuse and recycling Mm. and community. You know, we're in a society where it's looked it's not only uh, frowned upon for the most part but um policy political governmental policies actively work against community the whole idea the whole support of community and that is the absolute foundation of Bagpus. it none of that could work you mm. know everybody has an integral part talk about you know from everybody according to their skills yeah. to everybody according to their needs i mean it's absolutely um the fabric of backpuss it's totally inclusive yes totally inclusive and, uh, because it has all those different elements all kinds of different elements in it and you're absolutely right and it is of our time and it, and, it, and, that, and that's one of the reasons why it survived so long as well yeah. because the stories are of our time yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's fascinating isn't it thank you both so much for taking the time to talk about Bagpuss as well, but but also <laughs> the, the the whole theme, which I think is a really important one. It's been lovely to meet and speak with you both. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to talk with Sandra and John on this topic, and it is certainly one that we'll return to in the future. We've been featuring folk music performances from time to time to end episodes, and it would be lovely to continue to do so next year. So, if you're a folk singer or musician and you'd like to contribute a track for an episode, please get in touch via our email, thefolklorepodcast at gmail.com. Our last episode of the year will come out on New Year's Eve, because that is the date on which the tradition which we're examining normally takes place. Swedish folklorist Tommy Kasweiler will be joining me to discuss the year walk ritual, and we'll look at Swedish forest spirits too. I hope you can join us for that one. A quick reminder that you can still get tickets for our live all-day event on Wednesday, December the 30th, Rural Gothic Christmas Ghosts, with speakers including million-selling author Marcus Sedgwick, TV parapsychologist Kieran O'Keefe, and co-host of The Infinite Monkey Cage on the BBC, Robin Ince. 
Details for that are at bit.ly slash rgghosts. Finally, welcome to our new supporters who have joined recently on Patreon. I hope you're enjoying the extra content available on there. Without our Patreon supporters, the Folklore Podcast wouldn't continue. So do please consider joining them at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. There are extra bonus episodes, audio stories and much more on there to listen to if you do. I hope you all have a great Christmas if you're listening when this comes out. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The bony king of nowhere, he sat upon his throne. He didn't much like sitting there, because his throne was... His throne was made of stone. His throne was made of marble white, its feet were made of gold. It was a royal throne, all right, but oh dear, it was... It was extremely cold. That skinny king of nowhere... Feeling very chilly He said to go on sitting there Was really very And also very chilly He jumped up on the tea table And said, please will you find A seat that's something suitable To warm a king's feet Just see what you can find They fetched him up a hammock But they couldn't keep it still They put him on a rocking horse The rocking made him It made him very ill They sat him on a wool sack But that rubbed up his knees They rolled him on a feather bed But that just made him It simply made him sneeze That poor old king of nowhere Just sat there looking sad He said if you could help me I'd be very, very particularly glad The mice came up from somewhere Behind the royal charm They said, dear king, here is a thing To warm the royal And stop you feeling numb The thing, it was a cushion bright Of silk and gold brocade So square and soft and small and light And very neatly Of silk and gold brocade Now the happy king of nowhere Is smiling on his throne His smile is rosy His seat is cosy Although his throne is stone Is stone The mice have made him nice So nice He is a happy king One technical apology for this episode. Although Sandra's voice is very clear, the connection to Ireland where John lives was not great when we recorded this episode. I've done as much as I can to improve it. I've had to take out one or two parts where the voice was not very clear at all. Please do stick with it as best you can because there is a lot of really good stuff in this episode and I hope it doesn't mar your enjoyment too much.